Uh, I know we're running a little bit late, but kickoff is not until six, so we're, we're good, right? All right, okay. <clears throat> um, it did cross my mind that if you're not a football person, you might not have known what was going on up here uh, during our welcome, but uh, the Detroit Lions, which are the local football team, are playing the San Francisco 49ers, which is Nate Bailey's uh, lifelong team, and so that, that just, you know, I talked to someone this morning and they're like, I'm not a football person. Okay, so just in case you know. Or didn't know. <clears throat> All right, so uh, peace be with you. Yeah, good. All right, so we've been in a series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. We finished the Sermon on the Mount uh, right before Christmas, and, uh, and then we've come back into the Sermon on the Mount to do a, a multi-week series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we started that series last week, um, and so th- this, is, this is part two of, of that series, and it's going to take us basically up to, uh, to Holy Week. So, so if you were here last week, uh, we started off with the first couple verses um, that give us the context of where Jesus was coming from as he began to tell his disciples uh, this prayer, as he began to say, uh, you know, pr- pr- pray like this. Um, you know, that's what verse 9 says, pray then like this. Uh, and so last week we looked at what was coming up to, to that, that statement, and then the first phrase, our Father. Um, and so you, maybe you could say that last week we were trying to get a little bit of a sense of who it is that we were, were talking to. Um, now uh, the prayer moves into how, uh, a lot of the how, of the, how to talk to this Father. Uh, what, what are we saying when we talk to uh, God our Father? Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll try to do that by moving to the next phrase. But I just want to say right off the bat, uh, if you want to call this, this next phrase kind of the first petition... Uh, hallowed be thy name, or hallowed be your name, um, it, it is a little confusing to us. And so we're going to try to uh, get some clarity on it uh, as we walk through uh, our, our, our time, uh, the rest of our time this morning. So hallowed be your name. Um, wh- why is this phrase uh, so, so confusing? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of suggestions that have been made, but in, in Tim Keller's book on prayer, uh, he has just two paragraphs uh, that address this phrase, um, hallowed uh, be your name. And he, he offers uh, three suggestions of, of why it's, it's confusing, why it is like we look at that phrase and we're not quite sure what it means, we're not quite sure what to do with it. And, and the first one that he mentions is it's, it's the use of the word hallowed. We, we, don't, we don't use that word anymore. Uh, my guess is that just if you were here when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, Jesus used, uh, our English Bibles use that term, the Beatitudes. Uh, and it's like, what, what is a Beatitude? Like, we don't say that at all. Um, and, and so here, you know, Jesus says hallowed, and it's like, this is our English translation of Jesus' word, obviously, but we do not use, in our current context, the word hallowed, so use. Second reason it's confusing is the concept. The, the concept of, of hallowed is rooted in the idea of holiness, and, and holiness, if you haven't noticed, has kind of gone out of vogue. I, I know we sang the song, Holy, 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 today, uh, but generally speaking, in our culture, uh, the concept of you start talking about somebody who is holy or you're pursuing holiness, there's a lot of people that get really uncomfortable, really uneasy with the idea of holiness. It feels self-righteous or it feels uh, you know, like you're saying you're perfect. Um, and, and so we, we have some confusion in regard to the idea of holiness, uh, which is the, the basic meaning of, of, of hallowed. The third reason that he gives is the logic. Um, and you know, Martin Luther uh, agrees with Tim Keller on this point. It, isn't God already holy? 
Isn't God already hallowed? So when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Martin Luther's like, well, isn't it already holy? Like, isn't there a logic here that's like missing? Isn't God already holy? And it's a good question. But let me offer a couple thoughts on why Jesus offers this phrase, and it's not actually illogical. One would be a global sense, that we long for God's name to be hallowed everywhere, in every nation on this earth. And this is what you just heard from our missions team, and what our missions team has been working so hard on for the last couple years. Uh, a couple years ago, we, we um, uh, asked, and they were willing to step into the role of deacons. Scott and Carol Hoig uh, became our deacons of mission, and, uh, and they uh, went to work. And uh, we, are been, we have been thrilled with their commitment and their energy and the effort that they have put in to helping us as a church think about what, what is it that we're doing out there? Uh, what, has this church thought about its priorities? Have we considered uh, the opportunities that we actually have to be part of God's work in the world? And are we doing them on purpose? And you know, one of the challenges that happens for local churches is that you're, 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 you know, churches, a lot of churches have what you might call a missions budget or a missions program. And what can happen with your missions program is it gets, it gets kind of um, uh, hodgepodge. You know, it's like Bill's niece is going to be a missionary in China. And then Susie's sister is going to be a missionary in Peru. And this one's doing Bible translation. And this one's doing, you know, pastor training. And this one's doing a, a medical hospital. And it's like all of these relationships. And little by little, you, 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 you're sending a reasonable amount of money around the world, I guess you might say. But is it on purpose? Have you thought about a strategy? Does it align with what God would say is the priorities and, and the opportunities that sit in front of us right now in the year 2024. And so uh, actually about 12 years ago, our church went through the process because that we were in that condition in 2012 where we had uh, quite a few missions partners, but there was no cohesive sense to what we were doing. We didn't have good, clear priorities. And we went through the process of cleaning the palate. And so it took us a few years to get there, but I think by 2015, uh, we had cleared out almost all of our financial partnerships, um, and, and, and they were, some of those missionaries had retired, and some of the ministries had changed their purpose, and so we just decided, like, you know, those partnerships may have been good at one point, but they're not good anymore, and so we, we went through that, and it was, it was, some of it was hard. I mean, it's hard to have those conversations with, with some of your partners, but you might say, okay, that's great, Matt. Well, what happened between 2015 and 2024? Well, the answer is we, we never really initiated a clear strategy. And so in some ways, we kind of ended up with the same thing. Uh, a couple years ago, you know, we look at our missions budget. It's like, yeah, we, we have a number of commitments, but it doesn't look like, you know, we, we started over, but we didn't start over with a strategy. And so uh, what the Hoigs have been bringing to the table with the team that they have assembled is helping us ask way better questions about how it is that we can be part of seeing God's name hallowed all over the world. And we are really eager for that. And, uh, you know, we just uh, were, uh, got to bring this class, Perspectives, to Traverse City. But I hope you know, as much as we, you know, we, we put money into that and time and energy and our missions team spent a lot of energy on that, 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 our view of that class was it was for Traverse City. 
It, was not, it, was, it wasn't for sojourn. I mean, we benefit from it. But this is a community project. And, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so if you pray about this, let, let's pray that every church in Traverse City cares about God's name being hallowed in every nation, every tongue, every tribe that they hear uh, who, who, who Jesus is. And so that's part of why Shining Light International is here today, is we're, we're curious about what God's doing and this potential partnership that we want to uh, keep, keep investigating. So may every tongue and tribe come to know the God of heaven. You know, may, may that be so. But, but there's another aspect to this idea of Jesus saying, hallowed be your name. And, and that is, um, you, know, it's, it, you know, there's another aspect to the question of, of where. Uh, Luther and Calvin were both onto this. And it's not just the global ambition, as important as that is. In other words, we're not just saying, may God's name be hallowed out there. We also want to ask, what would it look like for God's name to be hallowed in here? What would it look like for my life and for my heart to actually have it be reoriented to that degree to where on a personal front, on a, in a personal note, that, that, that God's name is hallowed in my life? You know, Christians carry the name of God. We, we, we are called, you know, Christians. We didn't come up with that name. If you read the book of Acts, it's outside people. It's people that were not followers of Jesus looking at the followers of Jesus and being like, you're little Christs. You guys just act like Jesus. You guys just run around and do everything he says. That's where Christian came from. It wasn't our idea. It was people looking at the followers of Jesus and saying, what are you doing? You're just acting like him. Well, that's exactly right. But do you know the audacity of that? The audacity of us carrying the name Christian, of us carrying the name of God, and we want it to hallow, uh, we want to hallow the name of God in our hearts and in our lives. And we want it to be hallowed all the way down. And so there's a sense in which there's an endless journey of what does it look like for my heart to hallow the name of God. Just like it can feel like there's an endless journey to say how, what does it look like for all the tribes and nations to hallow the name of God. There's an incredible opportunity for us to pursue this uh, in our relationship with God. If you remember last week, I showed a couple circles by the author John Smed. And, and, and what he shows in that, in that circle is that if you look at the blue part first, our default prayers are self-centered. Our, our default way of going to prayer is to think about us. It's just to be like, meet my needs, make me happy, do, do all this for me. But what Jesus is doing when he says our father in heaven is he's increasing our capacity for God. He's helping us to see a bigger picture of the world. And then we move to this second part of this holy is your name or hallowed is your name. And there's this invitation to reverence God and to banish idols. And so instead of make a name for myself, it's actually saying, what would it look like for me to, 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 to deal with this internal life, to actually address what's going on in here, the way it's gotten sideways and have my heart in my life hallow the name of God. Well, how's that going? How, how is that going on a day-to-day -day basis? This is hard work. It's not easy. And yet Jesus is inviting us into it. So if we look at that phrase, now, now let's look at the word hallow. What, what does it mean to hallow something? It, it means to make it special. If you hallow something, it means that you are making it the most important thing. It is to set it apart. That, that's what the word holy means. The, the, the term for holy actually has a, it's, it's associated with butchers. 
And it's like the idea of taking a cleaver and cutting off the fat from a piece of meat and like sliding that fat to the other side. And you have separated it. You have set it apart. And that, that, that's the nature. When God talks about holiness, he's talking about being set apart. When the Bible calls God's people to be holy, it's calling us to be set apart. And when Jesus says, hallow the name of God, he is saying that it is to be set apart. It's to be made special. It's to be made the most important thing. Now, can I ask you a question? Why do you pray? If you remember, this is what Jesus was doing in the introduction to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness and then he goes, out, goes on to point out giving, praying, and fasting. And his point is, all three of these things are good things to do, but why are you doing them? Yes, you should give to the poor. Yes, you should pray. Yes, you should fast. But why? Jesus wants us to not just say, what are we doing, but why are we doing it? To actually wrestle with the internal motivations. They're all good things, but why are you doing them? And then Jesus actually gives us an example of this. You know, when you, if you ask the question of why do you pray, listen, do you only pray in public? Do you only pray in public? You know, if that's true, could it be that that is revealing that the main reason you pray is to be noticed by others, to impress others? I'm not saying that's the reason, but could it be the reason that the only reason that you, you only pray in public is because you're actually trying to make your name great? You're actually trying to make a name for you. Remember the beginning of this text where Jesus says, look, look, this is what they do. They stand on the corners. He says, these people, these hypocrites, they go on the corner and they stand and they pray so that they would be noticed by others. Instead, Jesus says, you know what would be better? You know what would show you something? What do you do in secret? What what do you do when nobody's around? What, What do you do when you have free time? What, what, if, what if that's when you prayed? What, what would that reveal? What, what would that say about your prayer life? What would, what would that say about your motivations? It's like Jesus is saying that your secret prayer life is a much better barometer of why you pray. Why, why are you praying? If you're only praying in public, could that be a tell that you're praying to make your name great to impress other people? Jesus says, go in secret. Check out your secret prayer life. What's that like? How much time are you spending with God in secret prayer? That's going to tell you something about why you pray. Another question. Do you only pray when you have a problem? When, When something in your life is threatened? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's comfort. Have you noticed how much more ready people are to pray in those circumstances. Now, on the one hand, it's totally understandable. You're facing some sort of stress. You're facing some sort of trial. But do you know what that also might be revealing? It might be showing you that you're using God to maintain the thing that you actually hallow. That the thing that you really, really care about is now threatened So now you're ready to go to God to say, God, you got to protect that. I got to have that. You you can't take that. 
You're using God to maintain the thing that is most important to you. What you really think is special. One more. Have you ever said, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive me? You know, one of the things that can be going on in a mind when they say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive me, is that you're saying that there is something more important to you than God to which you think you are in debt to. So you've lost your reputation with others. You've failed your perfect moral performance. You have failed your spouse that you idolized. You have failed your career that you idolized. And that thing's opinion is more important to you than God's opinion of you. Do do, do you see? If the most hallowed thing in your life forgives you, then you would be forgiven. But if the most hallowed thing in your life won't forgive you, then you won't be forgiven. If you look and you say, I can't forgive myself, then you have something that won't forgive you, that you are hallowing more than you are hallowing the name of God. Jesus' invitation here is to be honest enough to see that what you might call these idols are bubbling up in our heart, and as St. Augustine would say, we need to reorder our loves. He's saying that if you have failed your spouse, and you you have confessed that sin to your spouse, and you confess that sin to God, and yet every day you're like, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. That might be because you have idolized your spouse, and you have put your spouse in a position that is higher than God, and you are allowing that to be the controlling factor in your life. If it's your moral performance, and you thought of yourself as just like, man, I am such a, I am such a faithful follower of God. I, I've like committed my whole life to this moral purpose, this moral goodness, and then you failed. And you have confessed that sin, and you have gone to God, and you've confessed that sin, and yet every day you wake up, and you are, you are just racked with shame. You cannot let it go. You cannot forgive yourself. You, you, you need to wrestle with whether or not your moral resume, your moral performance, your moral standard is actually the most hallowed thing in your life. It's got you pinned down. Because the God of heaven actually has really good news for you. 1 John 1 says that if you'll come to him and you'll confess your sin, he he does that. He forgives you your sin. In Psalms, we find out that he puts your sin as far as the east is from the west. It's crazy. If he's the most hallowed thing and he says he'll forgive you, then guess what? You can live forgiven. That's on the table. Jesus' invitation is to wrestle with these idols and then to recognize we need to reorder our loves. We need, to get, we need to get the name of God, the person of God, in his rightful place in our hearts. But if you're sitting there and saying, that sounds great, but how? That, that's a good question. Here's, here's the case I want to make. You have to see something more beautiful. You, you, you want to have the most hallowed thing? You, you got to see something more beautiful. So we looked at the phrase briefly. We looked at the word hallow. Let's spend our third point and final point talking about the name, God's name. Jesus starts this prayer off by inviting us to call God Father. But Father is a title. It's an incredible title. It's a title. It's not a name. Father's not a name. It's a title. 
So what, what is God's name? Well, on the pages of the Bible, the, the, the name that we are given for God is kind of this unique name, and it's the name Yahweh. And, and, and Jewish people don't even say that out loud. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually, you know, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, and so it's a little complicated to how to even know how to pronounce it. And so the Jewish people, they don't, even, they don't pronounce it. They, they're uncomfortable doing anything with it. And so in a lot of the scriptures, it's, it's translated L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, Lord. We, we, you know, us Gentiles, you know, we, 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 we have all the boldness in the world. We try to pronounce it. We've come up with Jehovah, which is kind of like an English uh, effort to translate those, those uh, Hebrew letters. So Yahweh, Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. These are all referring to this name that God gave himself, that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He says, Moses says, well, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? You want me to go talk to the most powerful guy in the world? Who, who sends me? And God's answer is, I am sent you. Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord. These are, this is the name that God gave to Moses to identify himself. You know, Pope Benedict famously and helpfully said that Yahweh is a name and a non-name at the same time. Because it's just so unique. I am? That, that, that's the name? I am? The God of heaven is the God who is, who has always been and who always will be? Uh, author Wesley Hill, he says that there's a sense in which God is saying, you may call me by my name, but do not make the mistake of thinking that you thereby comprehend me. It's bigger than that. This relationship is way, way more complicated than me just giving you a name and being like, okay, got it. You prefer Matt or Matthew? No, it's like, it's, it's, it's way, way bigger than that. God is creator and we are created. And we can only know him to the degree that he wants to share with us. And in the gospel, he has shared himself in the most amazing way. See, see, throughout the Bible, God is actually concerned that his name is not misunderstood. This happens quite a few times in the Old Testament, where God actually does something, and he'll say that he's doing it for this reason, for the sake of his own name. And so sometimes it's him keeping a promise, and he'll, he'll literally say, I'm doing this for the sake of my own name. I'm doing this because my name needs to be understood in the world. It'd be so easy to get sideways on who I am. It'd be so easy to get sideways and think that maybe I don't keep my promises, for example. And so God says, for the sake of my own name, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Yahweh's name and his glory, Yahweh's name and his glory become totally entwined. It's like the nature of his name and his glory. Sometimes he refers to himself by his glory. It's like, it's this, this sense of his name and his glory are like totally entwined. And then he says, I don't give that to anybody. This, this unique name that I have, this unique glory of this name, the glory of myself, the, the Old Testament talks about the Shekinah glory of God. Like, nobody gets that. that. That is mine, and I give it to no one else. But about 1,300 years after Moses, we find out that God does give his name to another. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that God bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every other name, 
that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And so you have this moment where, you know, it's like, how could Yahweh do this? He's told us time and time again that his glory is like no other. And nobody gets my name. It's my name. Nobody gets it. It's my glory. Nobody gets it. How in the world could God give the name to Jesus that he said nobody else gets? And the answer is, Jesus is God too. That's the answer. See, this is the good news of the gospel. This transcendent, incomprehensible God took on human flesh and came to this world to rescue us in the only way that matters. In in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. He says that we behold the glory. Remember that glory that's entwined with the name of God? We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. You want to see the glory of God, you see it in God in the flesh. You see it in Jesus who came to this earth in a human body in order to rescue us, to rescue humanity. Have you beheld the glory of God on display in the person and work of Jesus? Can you see why it's worth hallowing? Why it's the most special thing in the world? You know, if you attend here regularly, you know that 2 Corinthians 5.21 has just captivated me over the last few months. And it's a verse that, if, you know, it's not an uncommon verse. But this is what it says. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. What, what that is saying is this, is that Jesus was treated as if he had sinned, the sin that we did. He's treated as if he did that sin so that we could be treated as if we did everything Jesus did. Jesus didn't sin. He was treated as if he sinned. And then that opens the door. If we run to Jesus, now we are treated as if we did everything Jesus did. It is this crazy swap of resumes like you've never seen before in your life. And Jesus takes all the sin of the world upon himself and he offers back to any who will come in faith, he offers his resume of righteousness. And Paul says, this is the scandal. This is the scandal that Jesus was treated as sin. He didn't sin, but he was treated as sin so that we who do sin could actually be treated like we're righteous, like we belong here, like we should be with God, like we actually have right to stand in his presence. Left to myself, I don't, but in Christ I do. This is the craziness of the gospel. And you know, Peter says the angels can't get enough of this. What's wrong with us? How come we don't, how come it's like, oh, ho-hum? I've heard that before. Yeah, somebody gave me a track on a bus once. Like, the angels can't get enough of it, and they want to keep looking and keep studying and keep investigating. And we've said many times that the gospel is like a swimming pool, where on on the one end, it's so shallow, anybody can get in it. But on the other end, it's so deep that you'll never touch the bottom. This gospel, this glory is worth exploring and worth gazing at and worth beholding for the rest of your life. If you run to Jesus and trust him to save you, then God does something else amazing. It's not even over yet. He puts in you his spirit and he makes you alive. And guess what? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we find out that the name of God the God of heaven, Lord, is given to the Spirit too. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. God said he was going to give it to nobody. He gave it to Jesus. Now he's giving it to the Spirit? Well, this is where our heads explode. This is called the Trinity. This one God exists in three persons. God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who all rightly carry the name, the name that is to be hallowed. And as one author put it, God the Father is the author of our salvation, God the Son is the means of our salvation, and God the Spirit is the agent of our salvation. And what, they are, what, the, what the work of God is doing in the world is providing the greatest rescue that's ever happened, where the, the, the worst thing that's ever happened, where sin separated us from God, is being reconciled. It's being dealt with. And Jesus is winning us back to the Father. See, when this good news of the gospel, when it pierces your heart, hallowing the name of, of, of God, it gets really easy. Think about this. Praise is so natural for us. And if you don't believe that, Look at the jerseys and the, you know, the, Lions, the Lions shirts and the 49ers shirts. And last week, it was Michigan, University of Michigan stuff. Like, th- this is what we do. It's extremely natural for us to actually in- experience something. And then one of the ways that praise works itself out is we tell others about it. Did you see that game? Maybe it's a restaurant. You're like, have you had that dish? Maybe it's your favorite vacation. You're like, have you been to that beach? Let me tell you about it. And, and C.S. Lewis, he, you know, he, of course, C.S. Lewis, he, 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 this, is, this is what he says in Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise, it not, uh, the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. That you experience something and it's so, so good. But you know how you end it? You know how you, like, how you, how you complete it? You tell somebody else about it. You're like, I got to tell you about this game. Like a couple weeks ago, I was at a Duke basketball game. And I have told, I don't know how many people about my experience at the Duke basketball game. Like I am praising my experience at Cameron Indoor Stadium. But one of the ways that I complete that experience is I tell other people about how good it is. And what Jesus is saying here is that when, when, when the, the, the good news of God's work in the world, when it has actually pierced your heart, hallowing the name of God, making it the most important thing, praising him, making it special, treating it as holy, it it becomes natural. If you don't hallow God, it's probably because you you haven't truly seen him yet. Like all the stuff we just talked about, that that he was treated as sin so that we could be treated as righteousness. Like that, that just hasn't quite, that penny hasn't dropped yet. And so my encouragement to you is this, stare at it until you see it. Keep keep investigating it until you see it. And when it happens, to use Carol's analogy, you're going to go to to widescreen. You're going to go from black and white to full color. And you're going to be blown away by the work of God in this world on your behalf and on the behalf of all people. The Lord's Prayer is Jesus' invitation to fight with yourself. And to retell yourself who God is and what he's done in Christ. To declare that he is the one who you want to hallow. As we come to the table now, do you see God as beautiful? Because it will make all the difference. You know, I I love this phrase, but like, how do you get a bone from a dog? You give it a steak. And whatever it is that you're hallowing is equivalent to a bone. Check this out. See the glory of God in the face of Christ. See what God is doing through the Father, Son, and Spirit. See the way that he is at work 
to rescue you. He is the perfect father you've always longed for. He's the one who switched places with you so that you could be rescued. He's the life-giving, guiding counselor who is ever with you. Father, son, and spirit. See, because what, we, what you really want will not only be the primary reason that you pray, it'll be the primary thing that directs your life. What do you really hallow? Who do you really hallow? If it's the God of heaven, it will make all the difference. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this table, and we thank you for this bread and this cup that represent the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. God, we thank you that, 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 that this, this work on our behalf, this rescuing work, the, the, the authorship of the Father, the means of the Son, the agency of the Spirit. God, that this all comes together in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that opens the door, that, that creates the way, as, as Peter writes, that Jesus could bring us to you. God, we don't work our way to you. We don't earn our way to you. That Jesus Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to you. So God, we, we thank you for his incredible work on our behalf. We thank you for a body broken and blood spilled. In Jesus' name we pray.